May we turn to Jeremiah chapter 15, please, in the Bible. And I want to begin reading with verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury. Let it, yet every one of them doth curse me. The Lord said, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. And then verse 16. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. For thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as water that fail? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if thou return, then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fenced, brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. This is, of course, Jeremiah. And our days are similar to his days. In verse 10, Woe is me, my mother. My mother. Do you realize, mother, what kind of a man you produced? Do you realize, mother, the course that his life has taken? Do you realize, mother that your son is cursed, he's mocked? Do you realize, mother, what are the deep things that your son has become involved in? That's the question. Jeremiah is saying, mother, did you have any idea that I'd turn out this way? And then after he asked that question, he turns and he tells his mother, 
that the word of God was found, and I did eat them. I began to devour the word of God. And this word was unto me my joy. This word was unto me my rejoicing. It was the word that filled my soul and filled my heart. And then he says, this word meant all this to me because I've been called by thy name. And it's thy name, O God, in which I delight. And it's thy word that reveals thy name to me. And so I've gotten into the depths of thy word. Mother... Did you have any idea that you would beget a son who would be called the man of strife and contention throughout the whole earth? And then in verse 17, Jeremiah turns and says, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers. Here was a great multitude. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. He said, I saw their assembly. I saw the way they mocked. I saw the way they listened to the false prophets. I saw the way they turned aside from the word of our God. He said, I didn't sit in their assembly. He says, I sat alone. Just look at that. I sat alone. Because of thy hand, it was thy hand guiding me that took me out of the assembly of the mockers. It was thy hand guiding me that led me out here alone. For thou hast filled me with indignation. Jeremiah said, when I see what they're doing, when I recognize what's been happening, when I come to this hour, he says, I am just filled with indignation against all this transgression and all this sin against the word of God. I'm just indignant that they would do a thing like this in the house of God. I'm indignant that they would do a thing like this to the word of God. I'm indignant that they would do a thing like this to my Savior. I'm indignant that they'd rise up and question the great and the glorious revealed truth concerning our holy faith. I'm indignant, he said. And then God says, Jeremiah, if you'll make a difference between the precious and the vile, don't mix them together. Don't keep them together. Don't try to say they can stay together. If you'll make a difference between the precious and the vile, thou shalt stand before me. And thou shalt be as my mouth unto them. And you'll go out in this area where the vile and where the precious are being brought together and they can have communion and fellowship together. And if you make a difference between the precious and the, between the vile, he says, you'll be as my mouth to them. You'll speak to them. And then he gives this blessed and most beautiful testimony when you read Jeremiah in passages like this. God says, Jeremiah, verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Jeremiah, there'll be a few people that'll stand with you. 
Jeremiah, there'll be some people that'll recognize that what you're doing is not worthy of the curses that they're pronouncing on you. There'll be a few people, Jeremiah, that'll make the difference between that which is precious, and they'll sing, Precious name, oh, how sweet. And there'll be others on the other side who'll say, Well, we'll have nothing to do with this scoundrel. We'll have nothing to do with this sort of a thing. And beloved, as I take this passage this morning and open it up to you and hear Jeremiah saying, Oh, my mother, oh, my mother, did you have any idea that your son would turn out this way? Every mother's concerned about the way in which her son is going to turn out, of course. Some to honor and some to dishonor. But oh, that the mothers might understand the needs of men like Jeremiah and men in these latter days and some of you mothers in this assembly today who are rearing children and our young sons and our daughters are rising up in the midst of us in this church and some of them in the good providence of God if our Lord tarry are going to be like Jeremiah and you might as well get ready for it. They're going to have the same sort of abuse that Jeremiah has had heaped upon him. Because Jesus Christ says, As I am not of the world, ye are not of the world. And if the world hated me, he says, Don't you marvel, it's going to hate you too. And we have reached an hour when God's people need to turn, as Jeremiah has said, I found thy word. And he says, It was the rejoicing and the joy of my heart. And I want to say to you, it's a great delight to stand in this pulpit Sunday after Sunday and to preach this word to you people. And to know that people are coming in to hear it from all throughout this area. Some of you driving 20 miles, 30 miles, 60 miles. Some of you drive even as far as 80 miles to get here on Sunday to sit here so you won't be mixed up with the precious and the vile. And so you'll be able to come and worship where the Word of God is being honored and where we're seeking to inform you people and to instruct you people in these matters that concern your Christian conduct and your life and obedience to our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you sit under a ministry that draws the line between the precious and the vile, the mouth of the preacher is giving unto you the precious word of God. And once this line is drawn, and once you see it, it cuts down through the ecclesiastical fabric of our day. It cuts out through the great social structure of our hour. We come to the place where we're a peculiar people. We're a separate people. We don't go with the world. We don't go with its filth. We don't go with its drunkenness. We don't go with its lust. We are a holy, clean righteous people who delight in the commandments of our God and we desire that our families will be clean and pure and we desire that our young people will meet other young people with the same precious and noble ideals and that they'll join together in marriage that God will bless their homes and out of the fruit of these homes there will come another generation that fears God that will raise up preachers who occupy our pulpits teachers who will instruct us in the things of God and men and women in the general life of our society who will serve the living and the true God. Oh, my mother, 
Did you know that you were raising up a son who would be a son of contention and upon whom the curses of the ecclesiastical system of the day would rest? That's what Jeremiah said. And this week, we'll go down in history, and the next week, these next two weeks, as among the most important in the religious life of the people who dwell on this North American continent. When I listen to Dr. Israel Garros preach and tell us how we should appreciate what the pilgrims did and what the Puritans did when they came to this world, they left an old world to get rid of religious intolerance and persecution. And they came bringing their Bibles. And all you need to do is to go up to Plymouth, if you will, and go out there to the cemetery and see the great monument that they have there and see them there with the Bible and gathered around the Word of God and see these pilgrims and these Puritans with the Bible under their arms and a musket in their other hand. And they came over to this new world to develop a land in which the Bible would be their guide. And beloved, these concepts of morality and purity, which are now under assault, and you can't pick up a newspaper almost any week, front page stories is about this and about that and about this, and they want to change all these laws that relate to the family, to fornication, to adultery, to homosexuality. These are the things that you're reading about, and the young people are festering on them today and we're seeing this breakdown because we've gotten away from the standard of this blessed book and beloved when the great monument of the church when the testimony of the church which has stood for this book and stood for the great creed of the Westminster Assembly stood for these mighty things through the years comes this week to lay it aside we have come to a transition period, the importance of which everyone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ must understand, and he needs to dedicate himself with full resolve that as for he and his house, we're going to remain faithful to the great holy doctrines of the Christian faith. And we're going to remain true, remain true and steadfast to this message that will regenerate the souls of sinners and make them new creatures in Christ Jesus. Out there in Portland, Oregon, the Westminster Confession is going to be just torn loose from the moorings which it has always had to the pulpit, to the congregation, to the Presbytery, to the General Assembly, and to the great fellowship of the people of God in this church. And what is happening here now is just the unfolding of the ecumenical creed, the ecumenical program, and it's moving in now into all these other denominations and these ten different denominations that are joining now in this one great union. They take identically the same attitude toward the Bible that the new confession takes so far as the Holy Scriptures are concerned. First, we have the laying aside of these ordination vows. And I want you to understand it this morning. 
You're going to have opportunities to talk to people this week and next week. You'll see it on television. It's going to be blown up across this country. The onward moving of the church as it seeks to meet the problems of our day. That's the way it's going to be presented to you. But, beloved, under seeking the problems of our day, they have torn away the foundations which alone can give us a solution to the problems of our day. The problems of our day remain the same so far as death and life and heaven and hell and sin and judgment and the wrath of God is concerned. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And the standards of righteousness have been set by heaven and not by man. The, the standards of truth have been handed down to us by God. We haven't put them together and said, God, we're going to give them to you. Now look at them. No, beloved, the wages of sin is death. It always has been, and it is that wage today that every man has to pay. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're in the midst of revolution. The most far-reaching revolution that you could possibly imagine. Could you imagine any greater revolution than for the church to get up and say, no longer are we going to subscribe to the Bible as his infallible word. We'll just lay that aside. Well, the Bible's an interesting book. You can be inspired from it. You can take what you want. You can leave what you don't want. But no longer will this book be the only infallible rule of faith and practice. They've turned their back on Martin Luther. They've turned their face away from John Calvin. They've retreated from the position that John Knox took when he stood in Scotland and even the queen trembled at his preaching. Oh, beloved, this book is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And, beloved, I must say to you people, if I didn't believe it, if I didn't understand it, I wouldn't dare walk into this pulpit and pretend to preach to you this morning. Your ideas are as good as my ideas. And somebody else's ideas are as good as somebody else's ideas. Who are you to know the answers to sin and death? You don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. No living creature has the answer to the tomb. It's sealed. It's dark. It's a mystery. And the only answer there is to that tomb is the living risen Christ. And the only place we know where there's an answer to that tomb is in the message that God's given us in this word. And I walked up the steps this morning and walked into this sacred pulpit to stand here and to preach to you people because I am a dying man. And you are dying men. 
and the only hope there is for you and the only hope there is for me is the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross that we might be pardoned from our sin. And we receive that message from this book. And we receive that justification from this cross. And we receive that glorious assurance from this open tomb. And we are a people today who have a book. And we have a message from God. And when you go out to the General Assembly, as I'm going to walk around the streets of Portland this week, and I'll be on some of these radio shows, and we'll be having a meeting. But, beloved, I'm going to be out there like Jeremiah. I'm indignant. I'm indignant, and I have a right to be indignant when any great church, and especially the church of my birth, the church of my family, the church of my years. I was born in a Presbyterian manse. My father was a Presbyterian minister. I come from a long line of missionaries back down through the years. I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, the crowning seminary of them all in those days. And out of this great succession, now I come here standing here today in this pulpit which God has raised up, and I stand here this morning as a messenger of Jesus Christ. I stand here today preaching this blessed word to your people, and I'm indignant. I have a right to be indignant, and I'm willing to do anything to let my indignation be known throughout the length and breadth of this land. No longer will ministers stand in pulpits and be asked to say, I believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the word of God. Shame on a church that will take the word of God and the pledge to that word out of the ordination vows of a man that they bind to preach to sinners who need eternal life. I'm indignant. I have a little of the spirit of Jeremiah in my soul, beloved. And I say to you that when they turn that ordination vow and they tear the church loose from it, where's it going to go? It's going to be floundering and wandering around out here this way, that way, shifting here and there. And I want to say like Jeremiah, I'm not going to be a found in such an assembly. I'll stand out here alone. God says it'll be well with your little remnant. It'll be well with your little remnant. I'll work in the hearts of the people. I'll raise up the ones who'll be faithful. There'll be those who'll dissipate, those who'll fall by the wayside, those who'll do these things, but it'll be well with your remnant, Jeremiah. There'll be some who'll understand what God has been doing in revealing himself to his people. Not only are they laying aside this ordination vow that commits the minister to the Bible as the only infallible rule of faith and practice, they are laying aside the second vow which binds the church and binds the minister to the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scripture. The system of doctrine. This book isn't just a hodgepodge with a lot of things thrown together that you have to like this and like that. It's just not a, a, a waste basket where all sorts of things have been piled into it through the centuries. No, beloved. This book tells a story. This book tells a story. There is a system. There is a plan. There's a beautiful, glorious program that God has revealed to us. It's a unit. It holds together. It belongs 
together. And the top is related to the bottom and the east is related to the west. It's a marvelous, glorious program. And where did it come from? Out of the mind of God. Out of the heart of God. Who created the universe? Chance? Evolution? Materialistic or a dialectical materialism? No, beloved. God created it. The true God. The living God. The only God there is. He made it all. And what did he make it for? Why did he put it together? Where came the stars? Where came the planets? Where came the earth on which you and I live? Where came the birds with their music? Where came the springtime with the flowers? Where came this tree with all its beauty as they put on their beautiful garments? Where came its kind reproducing after its kind? A rabbit gets a rabbit. A squirrel gets a squirrel. A monkey gets a monkey. A cow gets a cow. A human being gets a human being. Who ordained this order of the progress and the reproduction and the continuation of this little thing on which we find ourselves? Chance? Atheism? Dialectical materialism? No, beloved. A personal, loving, living God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Here he is, in his being, wisdom, in his being, power. It is being righteousness, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Our God is the God of truth. And everything you know about him, you know about him because he has revealed himself to you. A system, a plan, oh, we have it. It's here. And it thrills our souls and we rejoice in it. But remember, the Presbyterians 300 years ago had the same system. They had the same plan. They had the same gospel. They had the same God calling them. And they had the same assurance in his eternal purposes. We all had it. Oh, I tell you people, as I stand in this pulpit on this Sunday morning, if there was some way I could impress upon you the revolution, the radical change, what is taking place out here in Portland, Oregon next week, when they eliminate these two great ordination vows that have bound the great churches through the centuries, the Bible is no longer the infallible Word of God, and no longer do they have a system of doctrine. And I'm indignant. Jeremiah was indignant. You ought to be indignant. We ought to all be indignant. What are they doing to the church? But most of all, what are they doing to the precious little lambs in the flock that need to hear the system of doctrine and need to be taught the great glorious plan of redemption which there is in Jesus Christ? What in the world can I do? What more can your pastor do? What more can any man do than we're trying to do to reach people? 
to get you to say, I want to get instructed, I want to be informed, I want to help build the church, I want to help preserve the faith. What else is there worth preserving? What else is there worth preserving? But isn't this great system of revealed truth which satisfies our minds, comforts our souls, strengthens our spirits, and enables us to serve and love the Lord our God? What else is there? <clears throat> you and I in the Collingswood Church are in a very special position. We didn't put ourselves in it. God put us here. Oh, my mother, do you understand the kind of a man that you have begotten? A man of conflict. A man who says, I haven't rented anything, I don't owe anybody anything, I haven't harmed anybody, I haven't done anything to justify, but they're all cursing me. What have I done? It's in your lifetime and my lifetime that this great change has taken place. I've outlined the history of it in the latter section of my little book. And it's a history that you and I have lived through. Back in 1923, they had the famous Auburn Affirmation. The famous Auburn Affirmation. 1,293 preachers in the Presbyterian Church signed the Affirmation. I have a whole chapter on my book. The year before, the assembly had adopted what it called five points. They were the five points of fundamentalism. Let me read them to you. 1922, 1923, 1924. Quote. This is what the General Assembly said. It is an essential doctrine of the Word of God. A doctrine of the Word of God. Hallelujah. And our standard, yeah, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's going out now. That the Holy Spirit did so inspire, guide, and move the writers of Holy Scripture as to keep them from error. Who produced this book? The Holy Ghost produced this book. And it is an essential doctrine of this church. It is an essential foundation truth of this church and of every Christian church. That the Holy Spirit did so guide and inspire the writers of whole scriptures that he kept them from error and they gave to us the message of God. This is a doctrine of the Bible. It's taught in the Bible. It's taught in the standards of our, of our, of our church, the Westminster Standards. But after next Wednesday or Thursday when this thing is passed, it is no more. It is no more. It's gone. Look at number two. It is an essential doctrine of the Word of God and our standards that our Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, He was. Just read the Bible. Just look at our standards. He was born of the Virgin Mary. She was a virgin. Three, it is an essential doctrine of the Word of God and our standards that Christ offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. 
That's the cross. It is the essential doctrines of the Holy Scripture. I can't take a text dealing with the cross without telling you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and on that cross that son of his made the atonement for your sin and by your faith in him your sins are pardoned. That is essential. And if you don't believe it, you won't be saved. But if you do believe it, you will be saved. It is an essential doctrine. Now the next one. It is an essential doctrine of the Word of God and our standards concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that on the third day he rose again from the dead with the same body with which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth on the right hand of his Father making intercession. Do you want to take that doctrine out of the Bible? Do you want to say that's not essential to Christianity? If you do, you don't have Christianity. There is no such thing as Christianity without an empty tomb, without a risen Christ, without a Lord who sits at the right hand of God, and without the promise that he's coming again in the clouds of heaven. And beloved, it is essential to your faith and to your salvation that you believe this. Now the last one was, it is an essential doctrine of the word of God as the supreme standard as the supreme standard of our faith that our Lord Jesus Christ showed his power and love by working many mighty miracles, this working was not contrary to nature but superior to it. Here's the supernatural. First the Bible, second the virgin birth, third the cross, fourth the resurrection, and finally the supernatural. 1,293 preachers immediately adopted an affirmation and they said that these statements were theories. Theories. And they were not the only theories allowed within the circle of the Presbyterian Church. And beloved, if in 1922 and 23 and 24, if back there in those years when I was just a lad and I was in school, if the ministry of the church as it ought to have done, if the leadership of the church as it should have done had arisen up and said, you men who are challenging these deep doctrines, saying they're theories, they're not the only theories. Beloved, the virgin birth isn't a theory. She was either a virgin or she wasn't. And that's no theory. The bodily resurrection of Christ isn't a theory. There was either an empty tomb or there wasn't an empty tomb. It's a question of fact. And that cross on which he died was not a theory. It was a real cross. And the purpose of that death was not a theory. It was a forensic act in which the Son entered in and made himself the living sacrifice for our sins. And that's not a theory. I don't preach a theory. I'm not telling you there are other theories. I'm preaching good news. I'm preaching what took place. I'm telling you that Christ came to this earth and he died for your sins. And if you believe it, you'll become a child of God and you'll live forever. All right. They didn't discipline them. They should have put them out. And if the house had have been cleaned up in that day as it should have been cleaned up, you and I would be back at Fern and Maple Avenue or probably we would have outgrown that place by this time. You see what's been going on? All right, when they adopted the new confession, beloved, last year, 
Christianity in Crisis, May the 17th, just a year ago, published by Union Seminary in New York, this citadel of liberalism said, quote, It will be observed at once that the new confession does not aspire to constitutional status, does not specify any of the five fundamentals. I've just read the five to you. One might say, in fact, that the new confession goes down the line for the doctrinal paragraphs of the famous Auburn Affirmation, which opposed the exclusive assertions of fundamentalist tenets. What was a barely tolerated minority opinion 40 years ago is now being proposed as the official doctrine of the church. Beloved, in your lifetime, you have made a 188-degree circle. That's what you've done. You've gone from the day that unbelief entered to the day when it was tolerated to the day when it moved into places of respectability until finally this element has come so powerful that they've even thrown out the old creed, brought in their new ideas, and this is to be the confession of 1967, which will be finally ratified out in Portland, Oregon this week and next week. But do you remember, beloved, through all these years, they said, this is not doctrinal, this is not doctrinal, this is not doctrinal, it's administrative, it's governmental, it's not doctrinal. But when the battle is won and the victory is complete, Union Seminary gets up and says, now it is doctrinal. Now they have established the new doctrinal concepts of the liberals, which 40 years ago was just a little tolerated minority. Beloved, this is the way churches change. This is the way nations go down. And you people here in Collingswood, New Jersey, are in the presence of these revolutionary forces which are moving in these church circles, and we see them. I'm not interested in revolution. I'm interested in regeneration. I'm not interested in changing the structure. I'm interested in changing the hearts. And I'm interested in coming through to the hearts of you people and bring some conviction to your hearts so that you people who sat under a ministry that your pastors had here these years will begin to say to yourselves, Pastor, I didn't understand. Pastor, I didn't fully comprehend. Pastor, I do see what's involved. Pastor, let go of the work. I want to tell you, if you don't go to work, the other side's working. Do you know what this new confession is going to do to you? Oh, you, you dear fundamental people across the country that say, well, we can't do anything about it. You can do something about it. But you know where they're going here? After they get through with the old confession, they lay it aside. What do they do? They come up with the current needs. And what are they? The church then moves into the great political arena. And it begins to work to change the social structure. And all you have to do is to look at the Presbyterian church and see the older men. How many of them are heartbroken. And here have come in these younger men in recent years. And I had one of them tell me the other day, he said, Dr. McIntyre, these younger men in our church, he says you ought to see them. 
He says they're all going to meetings. He says they're in civil rights demonstrations. He says they have left the church and he says their people, he says, aren't getting the message. They're not taking care of their peoples. They're trying to take care of the social structure. And he's right. Are the Presbyterians and the Methodists and these others who are going into this ecumenical movement now going to pay the salaries of the leaders of the revolution? That's what it is. That's what it means. Now, what is the hope? What can be done out at, out at Portland? I want to speak to you briefly about that and ask your prayers. Oh, God says, Jeremiah, if you separate the precious from the vile, the belief from the unbelief, if you'll do this for me, he says, you'll be my mouth to the people. And beloved, that's a message today that the people need to have from the mouth of the Lord. You sons and you daughters, you need to get that message. And furthermore, one of the things that disturbs me is that when some of you people sit under our ministry here and you move off to some other town somewhere, the first thing you do is go trotting up to a national council of church and say, yeah, we're here, we'll join you. First thing some of you people do is to go back on the very things that you've been taught, the very things you've been instructed in, and the things that you know better. But it's too many people around here. I've got my friends, and I'm not going to go against the turrets. Jeremiah says, I won't be in the assembly of the wicked. I'll stand out here alone. And God says, I'll, I'll look after you, little remnant, Jeremiah. I'll look after you, little remnant. These issues that we're facing out in, out in Portland, Oregon this week, and your pastor's going to be right in the heart of it, and this is what I wished would happen, but I don't know whether it can happen or not. Something ought to be saved out of this great church with its multiplied millions. God took us out, and God's led us, and we've been a tremendous witness, but oh, if something could be saved. And what I'd like to see and what I'm praying is that when we get out there this week and they finally come up to this great climax and they adopt it, that there will be enough men sitting in that assembly who in the spirit of Knox and the Covenanters who went into the hills in Scotland who rise up and say, gentlemen, we are going to continue this general assembly across the street. And if a company will walk out of that general assembly while it's in session, while it's in living session, and say, we are going to continue the Constitution and continue the creed. If there's 25 of them, if there's a 50 of them, if there's a 100 of them, then they say, we are the General Assembly. We have the Westminster Confession. We have our creed. All of this over here is a destruction of the contract which this church has had with our people and our churches. And beloved, if they'll do that, maybe this presbytery and maybe this local church and maybe this other, and there'll be a remnant. And beloved, the Supreme Court of the United States in the famous Watts versus Jones case says that when the high body splits and these questions are involved concerning religion, it won't touch it. It won't touch it. And it would be perfectly possible to have some kind of a remnant out there. And I'm praying that's what will happen. That's what's just happened now in the Cameroon, as you know. And our brethren out there, the police came in, the state came in now, and they tell them they can't worship anywhere. But we have reached a day, and it's possible that that great assembly will split. If it doesn't split now, the cause is lost. Otherwise, people are going to have to walk out individually, little by little, little by little. And if that's the way God wants it to be operated, that's all right with us. We'll work on that basis. We're going to tell God's people that you must separate the precious from the vile. And what is more precious than a virgin-born Savior? 
And what is more vile than to say that Jesus was a bastard born of a woman of the street or of something else? Separate the precious from the vile. What is more precious to believe that his body came out of the tomb and it was renewed by the power of the Holy Ghost than all the corruption of death that lays hold upon our human bodies and we go back to corruption. Let's separate the precious from the vile. Let's stand up for the truth of the living God. He revealed himself to us. He's given us the message of salvation. And beloved, when you come to that last hour, to that last moment, when you take leave of this little earth, who will help you? Will the new confession get you any place? Who will be your refuge and strength? Who will go with you down through the valley of the shadow of death? Who will help you climb the steeps of heaven and enter into the highlands of Canaan? None but Jesus Christ. And my friend, I want you to know this Christ today. I want you to know the power of this Redeemer today. I want you to know that He died for you and He bought you and you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Him. Let's go out and be fools if necessary for Christ's sake. Let's carry the Tory. Let's let men about us know. And may God, as He has promised, keep that blessed assurance. It shall be well with your remnant. It shall be well with your remnant. Oh, you mothers today, you have a more difficult time rearing your children in our kind of a circumstance than my mother had rearing me. You've got problems. You've got problems, mother. And take this little one that God lays in your hand and your sons and your daughters and bring them close to your heart and let's teach them and let's train them. Let's put them in some of our Christian schools. Let's take them to our Christian high school and let's begin to think along these lines because God's going to have to preserve a little remnant. And he says, I'll look after you. I'll look after you. And that's the kind of promises in which we delight. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank Thee for this great text of Jeremiah. Oh, my mother. Woe is me, my mother. Dost thou know what kind of a man thou didst beget? And oh, we thank Thee for Jeremiah, and we thank Thee for his mother. We thank Thee that there are mothers who understand. And oh, Father, Thou hast said that we shall stand before Thee if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. Amen.